If you're looking for success, it's in the details. Small hinges move big doors. And now your host, Karen Allen. Hey friend, welcome to In The Details. I'm your host, Karen Allen. If you don't know, I became a widow at a very young age. My husband actually died in 2013. I was only 29. Uh, He was 33 when he was gunned down. And honestly, I felt like I was automatically inducted into this secret society that nobody wants to be a part of, the Young Widows Club. And it was only when I met other young widows that I felt less alone. And I know there are people around me who, you know, they showed love, they showed unconditional compassion, you know, family and friends. It was so helpful, but really nothing, nothing was as helpful as talking to someone who could relate to this kind of loss. My guest today, Amy Morin, also is a part of this secret society. Amy, unfortunately, lost both her husband and her mom in her 20s. And even though she started her career as a psychotherapist intending to help others build their mental strength, she never imagined how much she was going to need to build her own mental muscles. Today, Amy is living on a boat in the Keys. So (laughs) we were just talking about how there may be a little bit of wind, but it's all good. None of us are going to get seasick. We're happy she's here. But more importantly, she's the editor-in-chief of Very Well Mind and also the host of the Very Well Mind podcast. Amy, thank you so much for being with me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Well, I'm looking forward to this conversation because my listeners are going to hear how you and I have so much overlap. And I love just that you use the term mental strength. It's something that I've been using for a long time because I was an athlete former athlete. And so I just knew what it's like to, to develop that physical strength. And then when my own life hit the rocks, I'm like, wait, I thought I was going to be tapped out of resilience, but I was like, oh, wait, this is something that I'm building something. So just the fact that you are in this world and we're a part of the same good army, if you will, I feel very, 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 very grateful. But I am curious, what inspired you to become a psychotherapist and and how did you become interested in this topic of mental strength? So the story isn't like particularly sentimental, shall I say. So I was a pre-med student and uh on my first day of college, we had to dissect cats and I didn't want to dissect a cat. Everybody was so excited about it except for me. And it was like in that moment, I was like, you know, I actually didn't want to be a doctor. I just like the idea of being a doctor. And so I called my sister and I said, quick, I need to change my major. And she had just graduated with a bachelor's degree in psychology. So I was like, I'm thinking psychology, right? And she said, no, why don't you get a degree in social work? Because at least if you have a four-year degree in social work, you get a license when you're done and you can do more with a social work degree than you can psychology. So I switched my major the first day of college and I thought I'll change it later on. I just had to get out of dissecting a cat that day, but (laughs) it turned out that I loved social work. And so then after I got my bachelor's, I went on to get my master's and I thought, yeah, this is, this is really what I want to do. So I kind of fell into it accidentally. I guess how I also became an author was accidentally, (laughs) but discovered that I loved it once I started doing it. And then was just really curious, like, how does the mind work and what makes people tick and how do people get through tough times and how do people go on to live a really amazing life? And some people are all, eh, it's okay. I just really wanted to know, I'd get inside people's heads and figure this out and then help people who were struggling to teach them what I'd learned along the way. Well, there are lots of different ways that we can help people. I mean, one could be opening them up and solving a problem internally. (laughs) 
<laughs> but you don't need a knife or a scalpel to do that, right? Correct. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> well, I'm glad I definitely would have felt queasy on that first day as yeah. well. But I'm I am surprised that it took you getting there to that point where you decided that you didn't want to actually be a doctor. <laughs> yeah, you know, like nobody in our family, my sister was the first person to go to college. So it was always like, okay, go to college. And I, I had done well in school. So my parents were really like, you should make the best of what you have. So go do something. And I think it was like, all right, like that was the most aspirational career I could come up with at the time was doctor and just never really, I guess, sat down and knew what really went into that. So it was really took until the first day before I thought, yeah, no. Well, I'm glad that, uh, that, that desire to not cut into a cat led you to this path because Me too. It certainly <laughs> it is certainly the path you are meant to be on friend. That's for sure. <laughs> Now, one of the things, like I mentioned before, we uh, we have in common is this concept of of mental strength, and I, I just I started to use this word. I remember using it again because I was thinking it's something we can develop, but by default, people kind of hear that and they put it in the same bucket as mental health. I'm interested. How do you describe mental strength and mental health, and how are they different? Are they different for you? Yeah, I'm glad that you asked that because sometimes people will be like, oh, I wish I could be mentally strong, but I have depression or I have anxiety. Mm -hmm. But I think the easiest way to describe it is if we brought it back to physical strength, something tangible. Like we all know you can go to the gym, you can lift weights and you can build physical muscle, but that doesn't mean you won't ever get a physical health problem. You might still get high cholesterol. Mental strength and mental health are the same. Like, yeah, it prevents a lot of problems. It can help you live your best life, but occasionally you still might get sick and it's not through any fault of your own, might be genetics, might be other factors that come into play. So yeah, you still might get depressed. You still might get anxiety. Life's going to still throw you some curveballs. But when you're mentally strong, it's all about the choices that you make every day and saying, yeah, just like if you maybe had high cholesterol or a bad knee, you can still say, I'm going to choose to go for a walk today. I'm going to choose to go to the gym and work out. Mental strength's the same. Like, hey, no matter what you're going through, what are you going to choose to do today? And there are lots of ways to build mental strength, like physical challenges. Like you said, you were an athlete. So we know that pushing your body to do hard things is part mental too. But just like practicing gratitude from your couch is a mental strength exercise. So there's so many things we can do. And no matter what you're struggling with, you may have a lot of complicating factors like depression or anxiety or some other mental health issue, but you can still build it. And for people to know too, like you're not all mentally healthy or completely mentally strong. It's a continuum where you fall on this continuum between say mental illness and mental health on any day. It's going to change because yeah. people often be like, and same with mental strength. People are like, I'm mentally strong. I don't need to do anything. Like, no, you need to work on it on an ongoing basis. And I guarantee you, yeah, there's times in life where it's like, feels kind of easy to be mentally strong when life's going well. And then you hit this incredible curveball and you think, oh, all right, here's a challenge I never knew, or here's a something I struggle with that maybe I've never struggled with before because I'm at a point in my life where I'm faced with something new and maybe it's bringing up anxiety or difficulties for you. Absolutely. I, sometimes I get this question after I deliver my keynote, people are like, oh, well, you know, you seem like a very positive person. So do you think it was because you're naturally positive that you were able to get over and get through your husband's murder? And I'm like, is that a real question? Like, do you really think a chin up buttercup attitude is going to right. help you get over the murder of your spouse? And I remember though, during that time, like not feeling myself, and having to fight my way into finding those things that were healthier, that were going to help me to be a whole mom again. When you lost your first husband, 
which was only three years after losing your mom, you tell this story actually in your your TEDx talk, which I encourage everybody to go and watch. We'll make sure we put that in the show notes. In that time, can you describe, because you were familiar with what it's like, you know, inside the human mind, and if we could build mental strength, what was it like for you to live during that curveball, right? During that moment, and then having to find your way out with either some of the mental strength training and tools that you were already using or new ones. Yeah, it was. So it was three years to the day after I'd lost my mom that I lost my husband. We were both 26 and he died of a heart attack. You're not supposed to have a heart attack at 26. He was healthy before that. And I had lost my mom in a very unexpected, similar way. And sort of like lose two people in my life. And it was like they were fine one minute and gone the next. Like it really played tricks on my brain of like, you know, humans, my favorite people are disappearing. Like, how does this happen? And I'm supposed to be a therapist who helps other people deal with their problems, but I'm like, my heart's broken. I can't do anything for a while. And I remember going to work and like, I think I got three days of bereavement time and I was oh, like, don't even right. get me started on that. I know. Right. I'm yes. like, yeah, three days. Awesome. My sister at the time, she had, she said, well, I think you have short-term disability. Can you tap into your short-term disability benefits to which they said, we don't cover grief. And she dragged me to the doctor and she said she's depressed and she has ptsd and she has this and this and this my sister's now a therapist mm -hmm. and went through the whole list and they did give me lots of diagnoses that then allowed me to take three months off from work and thank goodness that they did because otherwise i'm not sure what i would have done i couldn't have worked as a therapist but at the same time suddenly i'm down to one income and i needed to figure out how to pay the bills and keep the lights on and I just remember like during that time I was, I sat at home on the couch and I watched a lot of Dateline. <laughs> I can remember thinking like, okay, what do you do? And everything that like was okay in my life just, you know, a month ago, now suddenly I'm like, how do you go grocery shopping for one person? You know, you walk, right? You walk <laughs> yes, up and down I the aisle that. <laughs> and you see the food that you used to buy because your husband liked it. And you're like, yeah. And so I can remember like crying in the middle of the grocery store and just, Yep. Little things like that, that are just, and they're like, you know, certain things that I didn't do that I didn't know how to do. Cause I'm like, oh, he always did that. Mm. And we lived in Maine and our furnace used to shut off sometimes. Like he knew this button in the back of the furnace that would restart it. And I'm like, I don't know where the button on the back of the furnace is. Mm -hmm. Amy, these are the details that people don't know happen. Like the moment when you decide, do I throw the toothbrush away? Like I should throw his toothbrush away. He's not going to use it like all right. that. Right. All yeah. That. Yeah, his jacket's hanging up where he last left it. Like, do I just leave it there? What do we do? Yeah. <laughs> right. And then, you know, and then the the stupidity of having to deal with bills that are in somebody's name after they passed away. Oh my goodness. Yep. And right. And like he had a Sirius XM radio in his car and like they kept calling me to tell me that I, I think his bill was due or something. And I kept asking them to shut it off. And they're like, well, he needs to be the one to call us. And I'd have to explain he can't. And, mm -hmm. and then they'd call back like the next day. And mm -hmm. I mean, just ridiculous things like this. So as you're going through the all, all these incredible hardships and grief, your heart's broken. You also have to deal with these problems practical things that are just dreadful. And I was so grateful for friends and family who rallied around me. And for a long time, like so many people took me either out for lunch or for dinner and just dragged me. I mean, eating is a huge chore when you're going through grief. It's not yes, something, it I mean, some people overeat. I'm one of those people. I just have zero appetite. So the thought of eating, like I could have cared less, but for 
I think the entire time I was out of work, which was three months, like almost somebody either brought me food or dragged me out of the house to to go get something to eat almost mm-hmm. every day between my husband's friends, my friends, our family. Mm-hmm. And, and that was really like nice to have people around because I know that for a lot of people, like after the funeral, the phone kind of stops ringing and people stop checking on you. Mm-hmm. And and my relationships with people change too, because other people don't know what to say or do. And I don't hold it against them because it's incredibly difficult and people want to cheer you up and they want to drag you to go do something fun when it's like, I really don't feel like going to the movies today. And I definitely don't want to go be around people, but they also, it's uncomfortable to sit around somebody who's really sad. You're right. <laughs> and so uh, people just don't know what to say or do. And I had a lot of friends who thankfully we're like yeah you know i'll just come hang out with you and we don't have to do anything and we don't have to go anywhere and we don't have to like cheer you up that's okay and i had uh one friend in particular who lived in boston which is about a three-hour drive from where i lived in maine and she would uh, work from home on friday so for almost a year every thursday night she drove to my house three hours and would stay at my house for work from my house on friday and then stay there over the weekend just so that i uh, she didn't want me to be alone And it was those sorts of things that really helped. And then I had to also figure out, as you know, like what what dreams am I going to hold on to? Which ones am I going to abandon? Like we had a boat. I wasn't going to go take the boat out by myself. It wasn't anything I was interested in. So then I had to figure out how do you sell this boat? But like on the other hand, I always thought, oh, it'd be kind of cool to have a motorcycle. But it was probably nothing I was ever going to pursue because we had all these other hobbies and interests. But then suddenly I was like, eh, maybe I'll go get my motorcycle license. So I did. And I bought a motorcycle. And that was something I started doing that was different than anything I'd ever done before. And I spent a lot of time like working in a garden. Uh, I grew so many flowers that year just because <laughs> I wanted something to do. Like, what do you do after work every day when you come home to an empty house? And we had been foster parents, but we didn't have foster kids, thankfully, at that moment in time. And I then had to figure out, like, do I want to be a foster mom as a single person? Eventually I did, but it took a while to get there. So I just remember, like you said, you throw out the toothbrush. There was a lot of, for the first year, it was just a lot of that sort of a thing of struggling with, okay, where do we go from here? And Mm -hmm. I was really lucky I didn't have to move. I started doing other things so I could earn money so I could keep our house. Like as a therapist, you can really only work 40 hours a week. And I did it in four days. I had a job on Fridays, but then I started writing as a side hustle. And writing was cool because I didn't have to do it if I didn't want to. I was a freelancer. So if I felt like writing when I came home, I could. But if I was too tired or I just didn't have it in me, I didn't have to. And so for me to be able to stay in my house for at least another year or two or for as long as I felt like I needed to was really important. I had heard about another widow who had to move like within a month and she had to pack up everything and make those decisions. And so I felt really fortunate that I didn't have to. And I had seen what happened to my dad too. Right after my mom passed away, his house caught on fire and it didn't burn down. It was about, I believe it was two weeks after my mom passed away and it didn't burn down, but everything had smoke and soot damage and So like we had to clean out all of her clothes and everything in the house and make all of those decisions like right on the fly of like, do you keep the sweater or don't you, or what are you going to do with it? And I didn't want to like have to make all those decisions under, under stress. I just wanted to be like, you know, I'm going to take my time and figure out what to do with these items or do I keep them for his future nephews or do I give them to family or do you hold on to them? And so I was able to do that, which for me was really important to be able to say, I don't want to make these 
decisions right away. I wanted to be able to wait. And I did. And like, I kept the toothbrush for a long time, just sitting mm-hmm. there, even though I knew there was no practical reason for it. Yep. It stayed there. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and for me, that was part of it. That was comforting is to be like, okay, I'm going to make these decisions slowly. And if mm-hmm. people think it's weird that I still have a jacket hanging up, like I'm okay with that. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And see that again, there's so many different components that go into this. It's not just the person's death and then the business of it and and all the things that you have to do with the bills that were connected in both of your names or just theirs and, and all of these things. So when you're dealing with all that, honestly, it's, it's hard to find the light. It's hard to feel hopeful. It's hard to pull yourself out. And the one thing that helped me was the moment when I was looking at my son, who was two, two and a half when his dad died. And I just started to see how all of my choices were going to lead down a path that I really didn't want for him, which was the path of him losing both of his parents. So the little choices that I started to make, the very first one was at night, which was a hard time for me because we would decompress from the day, was to say, okay, well, when I'm laying down and I'm in bed, I'm just going to think of a couple things to be grateful for. But I felt like I had nothing to be grateful for. What I didn't know at the time was even just saying thank you for this pillow or for clean water was starting to activate something in my brain. Was there any of those small things that you started to do early on, small changes or shifts or glimmers of hope that you now can look back and say, oh, I can see how those actually helped me to to grow forward and heal. Yeah, I you know, gratitude was big for me too and it was those teeny tiny small things and again it was like, oh, I'm grateful I get to stay in my house or <laughs> yeah. you know, because and I knew I think early on like okay, this is not going to be the life I envisioned. It's not the life I wanted. But uh, you know, I have a couple choices. I either make the best of it or not. And, you know, never knowing like what was going to be next, but I pushed myself to like start to get some exercise. It was the last thing I wanted to do. And it was winter in Maine and it's cold oh. and it's right. I mean, it's like 20 below out. And, yeah. uh, but I just started with like walking around the block and I had always been fairly physically active, but I just had no desire to, to do anything, but I would just push myself to walk around the block and found that to be okay. There's one thing I can control in my life is whether I walk around the block today. And I think finding small things I had control over, because in the moment I felt like I basically had control over almost nothing, but saying, yeah, I can at least control whether I take a walk today. And, and that started to help just going for a walk. And then I also developed a kind of a dark sense of humor, but to be able to like laugh at the ridiculous stuff because people don't know what to say to you and they say things. And I think it comes from a, a kind place. It just comes out wrong when people say, you know, all the things that they say. And so like my mother and a lot, let me guess one of them was you're so young. It's okay. You'll get married again. And you hear it within the first month of losing your spouse. Yep. Yep. I can remember like, yes, people are like, you're really fortunate that you're this young and I'm all really yeah, really? Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You'll get married again. And you know, you just want to like punch them in the face when they say that or like, what is wrong with you? But yeah, my mother-in-law and I would like keep track of like the, what we called the stupid comments and we would share them in a way that then it was sort of like, oh, let's collect these and just kind of share them. Cause people would say other things like, again, well-meaning what they'd be like, oh, you think today's bad. Like wait until a couple of weeks. Like you're going to feel worse for a while. Like, gee, thank mm. you. Thanks for letting me know. Or mm the kind of the toxic positivity, like when people would say, you know, well, at least like, no, don't start a sentence with at least right now. I don't need to hear like, oh, at least, you know, it wasn't near the holidays. Like, gee, thanks. Right. 
and so for me it was like all right like let's assume people have good intentions when people say things and it does sting like all right let's at least we'll have our private joke about it and that helped <laughs> to be honest for a long time that was like all right let's collect these and and then we could kind of like smile and laugh mm -hmm. and then we created a, a tradition too so my husband passed away in february his birthday was in june and i was like oh i had just gotten back to work and i was like now like how do i go to work on his birthday and i didn't want to and um, it was my birthday was the week before his and then uh our anniversary was in the middle of that so we always had like this really fun week mm -hmm. and i was like what am i going to do like i don't want to go to work but if i take the day off i'm just going to sit at home and stare at the walls and so my mother-in-law was like let's go skydiving and i thought oh that's an interesting idea and so we did and we created a tradition where on his birthday like still to this day we do something on his birthday that's like out of the ordinary like a family event we go whitewater rafting or we rode mules into the grand canyon but like made it a day where it feels good it's like something that we look forward to and we feel more like we're able to celebrate his life rather than just pretend it didn't happen because i felt like when my mom passed away we weren't good at that even though i'm a therapist my sister's a therapist it was kind of like we just ignored those sorts of days mm -hmm. and then you know like i i recognize those days but at the same time we didn't have a way to honor them so i wanted to do that and that's become one of the i think one of the best decisions that we made was like oh let's let's get out there and honor his birthday even though he's not here in a way that makes us happy and friends and family sometimes there's a huge group of us that we went swimming with sharks one year or oh my God. yeah and, you know zip lining and things like that but uh yeah it's become an adventure in a way that i think was really really helpful and i'm just glad that we did that early on because it was like a reminder of we can continue to honor his memory in a way that's fun and also i knew that his parents and his family would stay connected with me but just knowing like yeah we're still we're all in this together uh made a huge difference too absolutely again it's that small change right that is now right. making a lasting imprint because it could be oh no this is the day where i let myself feel sad all day some people do that too no mm -hmm. judgment but but that small shift actually is adding to your life right it's not sucking the energy out of you or it's not taking you into a darker space and that's one thing that just I think I love so much about the the human mind and the capacity to make a very small shift that makes a long lasting impact. And so one of the things that you also did early on on this journey was you weren't just thinking about, and, and actually I'm interested to hear the timing, you weren't just talking about the things that we should do to become mentally strong, but then you started to talk about the things that we shouldn't do that will help us to be mentally strong, which again is a small shift. And you mentioned this in, in the TED talk, but at what point did you realize, okay, it's not just about what I'm doing, but it's also about the things that I shouldn't do if I really want to optimize my life, if I really want to feel alive again. You know, so that happened early on. Fortunately, I learned that pretty quickly. So as a therapist, I was taught build on people's strengths. So if somebody comes into your office and they're like, hey, I'm doing these three things and they're healthy things, I'm like, yeah, you're supposed to keep doing those things, great job and cheer them on. But it was like, at some point, pretty early on, I realized, well, if I went to see a physical trainer and they told me to run on the treadmill and I was really motivated to get in shape, like, yeah, I'd totally do that. 
But then if they didn't tell me, hey, by the way, the fact that you eat jelly donuts for breakfast really negates the fact that you run on the treadmill, like, I'd be really upset. Because <laughs> I'm a you fan mean, of I can't have five guys burgers after I worked out. I thought that was balanced, right. Amy. Right. And I felt like <laughs> as a therapist, that's what I was doing was I was like cheering people on for all their good habits and then not pointing out like, hey, by the way, this one little thing that you're doing is counterproductive. Mm. And I really noticed like the people who were able to like live their best life and they're out there doing amazing things. It wasn't really about what they did. Sometimes it was about what they didn't do. If they just didn't have certain bad habits. And after my mom passed away, I mean, I was like studying the people in my therapy office as closely as I could, because I'd see some people who would go through a tough time and they just felt stuck. It might be 20 years later and it might not necessarily be the loss of a loved one. It might've just been a, a job loss or economic hardship, but they just felt like this one thing in life had robbed them of joy and that they could never be as happy as as they could have been had it not been for something that happened to them but then i saw other people who like had these repeat curveballs that life had thrown them and they were still doing okay and they were like happy and they were working on reaching their greatest potential they were hopeful and i was like yeah what separates people because life is going to throw us curveballs and because people will sometimes say like isn't mental strength just the same as resilience but like resilience is about bouncing back from horrible things but like, I wouldn't want to live my life just being like, okay, I'm going to build up as much resilience as I can waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like, I want to be good when life is good too. I want to make sure that I'm enjoying it to the fullest. And so that's what mental strength to me is really all about is saying, yeah, I'm going to enjoy the good times, reach my greatest potential. And obviously there's going to be adversity along the way, but it's not just about bouncing back. It's about working through that and figuring out how do you become okay on the other side. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that was that people would honor their feelings like you say, like sometimes it's okay to be sad. Sad is part of the healing process. And that I think is one of the biggest misconceptions about grief is we don't like to feel the pain. So we try to go around and we distract ourselves. We do everything we can to not feel it. But in order to heal from it, you have to go through. And with mental strength, that's one of the things like, okay, it's difficult to, to work through these things, but I'm going to face it head on because I have hope that once I work through these things, I'll feel better on the other side. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. What were some of the things that you realized that you needed to stop doing to continue to develop your mental strength? Yeah. When I wrote the list of the 13 things mentally strong people don't do, don't feel sorry for yourself was at the top How of the list. How about that? For a reason. <laughs> tell me, um, tell, tell me about that one. Oh, <laughs> well, you know, at the moment I was faced with uh, the, we knew that my father-in-law, he had prostate cancer. But they said, oh, it's prostate cancer, like it's beatable. And within a few weeks, they said, actually, it's spread. And then a couple of weeks later, they were like, yeah, this is terminal. And they gave him a terrible prognosis. And he now, this was when you remarried, correct? Right, right. right so right, right, I had right. gotten remarried and like, oh, woohoo, life is like, you know, I got a new job, a new house. And I like, OK, I'm building this new life for myself. And then it was pretty quickly after that that my father-in-law got sick. And I was just like, oh, you know, finally, like life started to look good. And now here we go again. And. And I know that that's part of life. Life doesn't stay roses all the time and that bad things happen. But I just felt like I just spent a decade grieving and here it is. And I, my father-in-law and I had grown really close. So the thought of losing him at the moment seemed fairly unbearable. And so I'm sitting there and I'm thinking like, I can't stand this. I can't do this one more time. I didn't want to see my husband lose a parent. I knew what that felt like. I was like, all right, Amy, if you've learned anything along the way, it's that self-pity is going to keep you stuck. And there's a huge difference between being sad and feeling sorry for yourself. Like being sad is when you can go through the process in a way that's healing. Allow yourself to feel awful. Absolutely. 
but don't start like exaggerating. Oh, my life is so bad. No, it will never get better. And I can't stand this. And and thinking that you, uh, your problems are bigger than everybody else's. And I was headed down that path, but I was like, no, don't feel sorry for yourself. And again, I think it goes back to like what my mother-in-law and I decided to do on my husband's birthday. Like, all right, let's not sit at home and feel sorry for ourselves. Let's go out and do something. And I just really wanted to figure out, all right, how do you go through tough times, acknowledge the pain, but at the same time, not sit around and, and host a pity party that would keep me stuck. Because when we feel sorry for ourselves, you just want to sit on the couch. You don't want to do anything. And then we kind of exaggerate how horrible things are. And we look for excuses to not do anything. But like, there's always something that you could do to take care of your feelings. And even when you can't fix the situation, like you can at least address your feelings in a healthy way. So that's why that was on the top of the list, because that's where I was in that moment. Mm -hmm. Well, our mind catastrophizes things and it'll make it so big that it starts to dominate every other area of our life, not just this one event happening or this one hardship that's unfolding or, or maybe it's just like one stressor in the day, right? But because our mind starts to catastrophize it, what I have found is that action helps to really check the reality, right? So you're like, oh, mm -hmm. my life is so wonderful. But if I can go outside and feel the sun on my face for a moment, maybe it's not all so bad. I'm curious of the 13 that you identified. What do you think is probably one of the hardest things for people to do? Obviously, feeling terrible for yourself is at the top of the list, but I'm curious if there are any other ones on that uh, list that you found is like, yeah, this is probably a very common one where most people get stuck as well. Yep. I think that one is probably number two, which is that mentally strong people don't give away their power. Mm. That one's really about saying when we say things like, you know, my mother-in-law makes me feel bad about myself or my boss makes me work late. We give people power over the way we think, the way we feel, the way that we behave. Taking back your power is about saying, you know, nobody can make me feel bad about myself. That's up to me. Or if I feel like my neighbor steals my time, Maybe it's because I need to set better boundaries. Or if I feel like uh, somebody's making me do something, like, are they making me or am I just doing it? And maybe you're doing it because you want to avoid the consequence, but just recognizing, yeah, this is a choice down to little things. When you say, I have to go to the grocery store. Well, do you have to? No, you're probably going because you want to buy something so that you have something to eat for dinner tonight or you ran out of milk, but you don't have to do it. And just when we switch our language, it makes such a difference. Like you're in control of how you think, how you feel, how you behave, how you spend your time, who you spend it with. From the moment you wake up until the moment you go to bed, your day is yours. And just taking back that power for me is is huge. And I still have to remind myself to this day, sometimes when I'm tempted to blame somebody else or blame my circumstances, like, no, Amy, you're in charge of this. If you don't like the way it's going, do something different. Oh, my gosh. And just switching our language can really help if you get rid of the have tos and you get rid of the, you know, somebody's making me do something, somebody's wasting my time or stealing my energy, whatever it is. When you really switch your language, it just really puts the power back on you. And yeah, of course, sometimes it's easier to blame other people. But at the same time, when you empower yourself to say it's up to me, yeah, you can start to recognize that you have choices. Oh, my gosh. So the power of choices is that thing that I 
I really believe people underestimate, right? You're not, if you, if you think about the power of choice, you put yourself into a position to really create the quality of life that you want. And that was that big internal shift for me was when I was feeling completely sorry for myself and I was in the victim mindset, which by the way, rightfully so, because our family was a victim of a heinous crime, but I, I could start to see how that was starting to get really, really dark. And that was when that little switch turned on that, wait, I can own my response to this thing. I choose how I'm going to heal, how I'm going to move forward, like what I'm going to do in this breath. I am going to own even that moment because what we find when these moments of uncertainty or stress hit is it reminds us that life is completely out of our control until we do that thing that you mentioned just a few moments ago, do something that is within your control. And that helps you to own your life and shape your life and really co-create it in a way that becomes evidence of what you believe your, your life can be. It can be sad if you believe that. It can be, be terrible. It can be full of problems or it can be absolutely wonderful in spite of those. Yeah. Or that mind shift. Cause sometimes people think, oh, positive thinking is the cure for everything, but it's not like thinking positive changes your life, but it can change yeah. your, your behavior in a way that changes your life. If you walk outside with a smile on your face, as opposed to you give people a scowl, like people treat you differently. Yep. And if you walk into a situation with a positive attitude, asking for something like you're much more likely to get it than if you're yelling and screaming and demanding things or if you're looking for the good in the world, you'll find it. But also if you're looking for horrible things to happen, you'll find that every day too. So it's really, a, yeah, okay. It's all about switching your mindset and then changing your behavior and changing the way that you think affects how you feel and affects how you behave. So it can often just start right there with saying, yeah, what's one yeah. thing I can control today? Yeah. One of my favorite quotes is being positive doesn't make all things better, but being negative always makes them worse. Yes. And, and I'm like, and guess what? If I can't be positive, I'm going to be neutral. Like, I just don't want to spread more negativity in this world. There's enough out here. Like, let's amplify the good. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But, but, and part of that is like, we do deal with humans. Uh, we're, we're just dealing with a lot of complex emotions inside and, and you can even feel two conflicting things at the same time. Like to be a human, it's trippy, man, when you think about it, but you, you mentioned something recently that it really is about reframing how we interact with our feelings, right? So you, if I, if I remember this correctly, you said, Check in with your feeling and find out if it's a friend or an enemy. And then in the moment, you know how to use it. Can you explain that a little bit? Because I think that could really help how we interact with our feelings, especially those that feel really big. <laughs> yeah. So often people will say stuff like a negative emotion. People say like, oh, anger is a negative emotion. Well, like it's not a negative emotion. Anger helps a lot of times. If you need to stand up for yourself, get angry and you'll find the courage to do it. I guarantee it. And there's so much research about emotions and like we never talk about feelings. It's so weird. Like people talk about emotional intelligence. Like I guarantee we're not there yet. When I give no, a speech, no. right? I'll give a talk to like a, a room full of high level executives and I'll be like 30 seconds, write down as many feeling words as you can. They usually come up with an average of five. <laughs> so to say like we're going to identify like not just my emotions, but your emotions. And I'm going to frame my conversation around how we're all feeling in the room and like let's not, let's not skip that far ahead. Quite Most yet, people but... don't even have the language to be able to identify those emotions, let alone the tools on how they're going to interact with them. <laughs> exactly. And so sometimes if we just back up and you say, how am I feeling right now? And sometimes it's about, you can print out a list of feeling words. If you Google it, find one online, print it out, hang it up on your bathroom mirror. If you need to check in with yourself, maybe when you brush your teeth in the morning, when you brush your teeth at night, like how am I feeling right now? 
a lot of research will show that just naming your emotion takes a whole bunch of the sting out of it. So if you can say I'm sad right now or I'm anxious and then ask yourself that question, like, is this my friend right now or my enemy? If I have anxiety and it's telling me, hey, that get rich quick scheme that somebody wants you to take part in, maybe that's not a good idea. Well, then anxiety is my friend. It's trying to keep me safe. But if my boss said, hey, can you present this at the next meeting and I'm terrified of public speaking, anxiety might be my enemy because it holds me back or angers your friend when it gives you the courage to say, hey, this isn't okay. I'm going to stand up for myself. But it's your enemy when you say something really mean to somebody that you love just because your temper is up. So it's about just recognizing like, yeah, or like sadness, like we talked about. Sadness is your friend, but it helps you honor something that you lost. But if you stay in bed for six months and you can't get up, like then your sadness is your enemy because it's going to keep you stuck. So just recognizing is what I'm feeling right now, my friend or my enemy. And then you can decide, do I just need to embrace it? Sometimes we do like, hey, allow yourself to feel this thing. Your anxiety might be telling you something. Your a sadness might be allowing you to honor something. Like feel it. Try to not just distract yourself right away or try to not change your mood right away, but allow yourself to feel it at least for a few minutes. And then if it's your enemy, like, okay, all right, my anxiety's through the roof right now just because I'm worried about somebody else. Well, there's nothing you can do about somebody else's behavior. So then pacing back and forth just fuels it or incessantly texting somebody who's not replying to you makes your anxiety go even higher. So in the moment, if it's an enemy, then you say, all right, well, what can I do? And it's then about saying, I'm going to either change how I think or change how I behave or both. Because if you want to change your feelings, you need to change your thoughts and change your behavior. So, all right, I'm not going to think about that, or I'm going to go for a walk outside, or I'm going to call somebody and talk about a completely different subject other than what's worrying me at the moment. And then if you boost your mood just a little bit, it gets the intensity of the emotion down. And then you can think more clearly when we have really intense emotions, whether it's anxiety, anger, anything like that, like it's hard to come up with a solution. Those feelings will cloud our judgment. So if you just reduce the intensity of it a little bit, you can often come back and say, all right, here's what I'm going to do about it. Or you can tackle it from a different angle, or you can figure out, all right, this isn't a problem for me to solve if you're worried about somebody else, for example, but I can address how I feel about it. So just asking yourself that question, is this a friend or an enemy? Helps you figure out, do I need to just embrace this right now or should I work on shifting how I feel? And sometimes we get that wrong, but it's all about practicing and figuring out, yeah, okay, I can I can tolerate this emotion right now or, or I need to fight against it and face these fears or uh, reduce the intensity of this anger that I have going on. And with practice, you get better. Absolutely. With anything, practice helps you to get better. And what you're saying here is just by checking in with yourself, you're building that awareness. So now you're getting better at building awareness of what's going on inside of you so that you can choose how am I going to respond knowing that this is what's going on inside. And you're absolutely spot on. I think the best that we could hope for in all of these situations that feel really heavy or really hard is that we can just show up and make good decisions from a place of composure. Are we going to get it right 100% of the time? No. But if we can think clearly and at least attempt to think clearly through the muck, if you will, then we'll feel better about what comes on the other side, right? But a lot of times, because our emotions are so heavy and so high, we're not thinking clearly. Then we have to backtrack and maybe fix some other problems that were created. But starting from that place, creating that pause and checking in with yourself could absolutely mitigate future problems if you weren't taking that just beat to find your composure. I love that. 
Exactly. You want to learn how do I respond to my emotions in a healthy way rather than just react? Because sometimes mm-hmm. we're so impulsive that we're just like, oh, anxiety, I have to do this. And we all have these certain coping strategies that we use with different emotions. And sometimes those coping strategies probably serve us well, but sometimes they don't. And unless you really pause and pay attention to how you're dealing with those emotions, you won't really be able to figure it out. Mm, Exactly. Exactly. I love that. So what kind of advice would you give someone who feels like they're maybe struggling with building their mental strength that they feel like, okay, I've tried so many different things and, and, and maybe they just have a a misconception on about, about what mental strength is. What's one of the first things that you would suggest someone can start doing today? So it's really, you can choose. Do I want to work on the way I think the way I feel the way I behave? There's exercises for all of them. So sometimes people are like, all right, Maybe a thinking exercise is the best. And so they just work on reframing their thoughts. Other people say, okay, emotions are where I need some work. So I'm just going to work on naming my feelings. Or if somebody says it's my behavior because I lash out or I do things impulsively, like, okay, what are we going to do? It might be that pause, or maybe it's what we call the 10 minute rule. I'm just going to do something for 10 minutes, like go to the gym. If I talk myself out of it at the 10 minute mark, I'll go home. So there's so many different ways you can tackle it and sort of like If you had a toolbox of tools, maybe you're going to use the screwdriver more than the hammer at your house, but like we all have a toolbox and knowing which tools work best for you in which circumstances and it takes practice. And if somebody's really struggling, like by all means, get some help, whether that's you talk to a friend, a family member, you get a support group or you get professional help with a therapist. There's lots of things we can do, but so often we all feel alone in what we're struggling with. As a therapist, I have the luxury of knowing so many people are struggling with things, thinking that they're the only one struggling with it. But what they wouldn't know is the next person who would walk into my therapy office would say something very similar, but they'd say, nobody knows I'm struggling with this. And from the outside, people who look completely put together are often struggling with things that you have no idea if you just looked at them because they look completely put together. But to know that you're not alone. And when we start talking about things, it just life gets so much better. Yeah. Oh my gosh. One of my favorite shows right now is shrinking. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I love it because it's showing that even therapists are going through their own struggles. Right. <laughs> like right. It, just, it reminds us that we're, we're all human. And honestly, it's one of the reasons I really, I love your shows because you have conversations with folks like Terry Cruz and I think you just had Chase Rice on and yeah. you're showing individuals who, and I believe this is very, very true. The more we share our stories in our human side, it connects us more deeply and we feel less isolated. And, and many times when we see whether it's athletes or entertainers or actors, we think that their life is all together, but then you hear stories of people like Ellen DeGeneres or Kevin Hart. And when they share, you know, what they've been through and their background and their trials, we actually find out that we're all going through stuff. We're all going through struggles, not just outside circumstances that we feel like are put up against us, but internal chaos that we're trying to find our way through. And so thank you so much for sharing your personal story, also for creating various platforms where people can share theirs. And I'm just so grateful that we also had an opportunity to have this conversation today. Amy, you're doing wonderful work in helping people develop their mental strength. Where can folks learn more about you and get your resources? So my website is Amy Morin, LCSW, as in licensedclinicalsocialworker.com. And as you said before, I'm the host of the Very Well Mind podcast. People can find out more details about that at verywellmind.com. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Amy. Hey, stay safe out there in that storm in, in the boat. Thankfully, I will. There thank wasn't you. a whole lot of rocking. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. This has been In the Details. If you like the show, tell a friend. 
For more shows like this, go to success.com slash podcasts.